The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. And we have a wonderful privilege to study God's Word together right now. If you have a bulletin on the back, put a title there for you. Uh, it just says the text is 1 Corinthians 12. We're actually looking at verses 11 to 14. I decided to go to 14 and instead of 13. Um, actually, it's hard to break that up. Um, because 14 goes with 13 and 15, so we'll see that as we go. Um, We are going through the book of 1 Corinthians. I want you to go back, because it's been a while, I want to remind us of the context of this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, as a pastor, an apostle to a church that he planted, that he pastored for a year and a half, and now he's been away from for probably a couple of years, trying to help them from a distance. And the Corinthian church, the assembly there, they had, uh, they were a growing and gifted church yet, and an excited church, but they had some problems, had some immaturity was probably maybe their biggest problem. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to read a verse out of there and then I want to go back to chapter 12 to remind us of the context. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, uh, just asserts that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, formal representative of the church. Uh, what he's going to write is actually divine revelation. It is authoritative. It is binding. It's equivalent with previously written scripture, like the Old Testament. Uh, he commends them for believing the gospel. He's thankful to God for them, despite all their failings. Isn't that a good reminder? How gracious. Uh, and then, But then he cuts to the chase in verse 10 and gives the purpose statement of why he's writing and why he penned 16 chapters worth of material, most of which we've already covered. But in verse 10 of chapter 1, he says this, Now I exhort you. This is authoritative. Now I exhort you, brothers and sisters in Christ, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, I am pleading with you to get along as a church. Because I am hearing that you're not. There, there's too much divisiveness going on. You're quarreling. He says in verse 11, in the middle of verse 10, he says, uh, I exhort you that you would agree and that there would be no divisions among you. Schismata is the Greek word. Schism literally means splintered, like a piece of wood that just gets smashed and is splintered from one piece to many uh, that go everywhere. And now they're divided. They're not one anymore. And that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. The church was becoming splintered, the very opposite of what Jesus prayed for. To his father in John 17, the very opposite of what God requires for a mature church to be a witness to the world on the behalf of the unity that exists within the three persons of the Trinity. So this is a huge problem. This is a grave concern. And this should be a grave concern for every church leader, pastor, and elder. One of their greatest concerns is preserving the unity of the local church. And so this is a theme all throughout. That's a theme that weaves its way all throughout this book is Paul is addressing their divisions. And they had divisions over a lot of things. And we've addressed uh, several of those all throughout. Now we get to chapter 12 through 14, and he's addressing very specifically the schisms or the divisions that they had regarding spiritual gifts and how they used them in their local congregation. So now I'll go back to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25. We haven't gotten there yet, but it's like a summary statement, a theme statement, a thesis statement. Paul's going to write all of chapter 12, all of 13, and all of 14 for the sole purpose 
of dealing with this problem of schisms or divisions in the body regarding spiritual gifts. That's why in verse 25, 1 Corinthians 12, he says, in order that, I've written all this, in order that there should be no schisms in the body, no divisions in your local congregation. And so that is the overarching theme, just to remind us so that we don't lose the big picture and the continuity of what we've been preaching many weeks now in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul is writing to correct their divisive, competitive attitudes in their local church regarding their use of spiritual gifts. And the big problem apparently was is that some of these Corinthians did have the gift of showy gifts, speaking gifts, whether it was prophecy, the word of knowledge, and especially speaking in tongues. These were like stand up, speak out, high profile, everybody's looking at you, everybody's listening. And so those were the showy gifts. And several of the Corinthians, they had the wrong attitude about it. And so they were showing off their gifts, flaunting it, not out of concern of others, not out of concern of edifying the body of Christ, not out of, for the glory of God or the love for the body, but it was all for self, totally self-centered. And that was creating division in the church. And so he's writing this section to remedy that problem. So with that, Let's go to the beginning of chapter 12 now, and we'll look at the verses we're dealing with today, verses 11 through 14. I'm just going to read, um, starting at verse 4, and I'll read 4 through 14 to set the context as Paul's talking about spiritual gifts. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of effects, but the same God, who works all things in all persons, or all Christians. But to each one or to each believer is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. For to one Christian is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another believer is given the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another believer the gift of faith and by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another the gift of prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. Now our passage, but, okay, there's a transition, but. There's variety, but he's making a transition to highlight unity amidst variety. That's why he says, but. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one, each believer individually, just as he wills, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. So what Paul's doing here, just to highlight, he just talked about, as I meant, went through all those nine different gifts. He was highlighting diversity in the body that is by God's design that is important and necessary. It's okay that we have different gifts. As a matter of fact, that's God's design. We need diversity and variety and differences because that provides a beautiful balance. And all those diverse gifts came from one source, the Holy Spirit, actually the triune God. Now he's transitioning to highlight not the diversity he just talked about, but 
uh, the unity among all these different gifts. And that's the emphasis in verses 11 through 14 and really verses 11 down to verse 26 is this unity or this harmony that we should have in the body of Christ despite the variety in our spiritual gifts. Just because you're gifted in a different way doesn't mean uh, you are inferior to another Christian. Not at all. So we need the variety. We need to celebrate our diversity, celebrate our differences as God has ordained. It's a gift from Him. So let's go ahead and look at uh, verses 11 through 14 as Paul uh, walks us through this in the different points. Uh, so on your outline there, I broke it up. I just made each of the verses a specific point regarding this diversity on one hand and unity on the other, or variety on one hand and harmony on the other. And that's why he's going to get into uh, the the perfect metaphor an illustration of diversity and unity working together is the human body. How practical is that? How relevant is that? Everybody has a body. And we have diversity and unity, and so we inherently understand this concept that you can have harmony and unity even amongst differences or diversity. That's his whole point. So, uh, again, keeping in mind as we go through this that one of Paul's main concerns is we cannot be divisive about spiritual gifts. Even if we disagree, even if we understand it differently, even if some people are at a different place than other people, we can't be divisive about that if, if we are truly born-again Christians, brothers and sisters in the Lord. We've got to allow uh, a discussion and prayer and interaction and uh, searching the Scriptures together and also time and growing and learning and maturity in, in all of us, the body of Christ. We've got to preserve that Unity and preserving it in the truth. And the, the Bible is our standard for discerning that truth. That is our common ground that provides that unity. So in light of that, uh, the title of this sermon, uh, as you'll note at the top of the handout there, very simply, I just put the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I chose that is because that's what Paul's talking about in verse 13. He refers to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For by one Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So the Holy Spirit baptized us. So that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of a key passage or a key verse in this passage right here in terms of the context. Uh, we're going to explain that a little bit further. But when I say the baptism of the Holy Spirit, depending upon your Christian background or your evangelical background or your upbringing or your teaching, that might conjure up different ideas or different theology or different practices in your mind. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. My early days as a Christian from age 19 to 21-ish were mostly in charismatic Pentecostal circles. And so to me, when I heard baptism of the Holy Spirit, immediately I was thinking, Okay, baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit, that uh, means being filled with the Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's something that happens after you get saved later on in your Christian life. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's kind of the second blessing. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's kind of a, a higher plane of Christian living. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's uh, when you receive this second blessing and live on this higher plane and the outward manifestation of that is the ability to speak in tongues. Now, that's what I was taught as a charismatic in the first few years of my Christian life, and that was the universal teaching, and that would be accurately representing charismatic theology today. Uh, but I would say that isn't what Paul is talking about 
when he says the baptism of the Holy Spirit in verse 13. So we need to look at that. What does Scripture really say? And what does Scripture mean by the, that phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And we're going to get to that. And I think it's pretty clear in Scripture. But uh, let's go ahead and start with, uh, let's just go through those first four points and then we'll wrap it up with a summary on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we're looking first at verse 11. Uh, the emphasis there is the authority of the Holy Spirit. That was one of the problems of the Corinthians. They're abusing their gifts, misusing them, being showy, being self-centered, being pompous. Paul said earlier, I think it was in chapter 4, you are arrogant, arrogant, puffed up. They are the authority. They are in charge. What they say goes. So they needed this healthy reminder that, no, you aren't in charge. You aren't the sole authority. God is the authority. And when it comes to spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit is the authority. In giving the gifts, issuing and empowering the gifts, defining the gifts, monitoring and managing the gifts, the purpose of the gifts is the Holy Spirit who is the authority. That is his point. Look at verse 11. But it's one and the same Spirit works all these things. So that same Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. It's the one Holy Spirit that's working with your gift. And maybe your gift isn't showy. Maybe your gift is one of those that... You do kind of behind the scenes before everybody shows up in a dark corner somewhere setting something up. Set up. The set up crew. And you're using your gift of service. That's one of the spiritual gifts. Or helps. It's not a showy gift. Many times nobody sees it. But it benefits and edifies the whole body. But it is the Holy Spirit of God who energizes that Christian to do their menial task of service. The same powerful Holy Spirit. Who energizes that gift is the same Holy Spirit who energizes the showy gifts of those who would stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, and they had the gift of prophecy. So they weren't better just because they had a showy gift. That's his point there. But it's one of the, it's the same Holy Spirit who works all these things. What does he mean by that? It's the Holy Spirit who's providing the power and the energy and the ongoing ability supernaturally to employ and work out your gift. You don't work out your spiritual gift in your own human strength. It is a supernatural power that comes only from God. And the same resource is available to every Christian. And that resource is the Holy Spirit Himself. So it's the same Holy Spirit that works all things. He's in charge of the spiritual gifts. He dispenses them. And notice this, the second part of verse 11, distributing to each one, it is the Holy Spirit who distributes or gives to each Christian individually, The gifts. We've said this repeatedly. I'm getting redundant about it because Paul's redundant about it because they were missing that. The Holy Spirit is the one who distributes the spiritual gifts to the Christian. Again, that is the opposite of what many would say today is that we need to ask the Holy Spirit for a spiritual gift, a specific one. God, give me this one. I want this spiritual gift. I want to be an apostle or I want to speak in tongues or I want that one. That isn't how it works. Very clearly here. The authority is the Holy Spirit. He owns the gifts, he distributes the gifts, and he does it at his sovereign pleasure. Distributing each spiritual gift to every Christian, key phrase at the end of verse 11, just as he wills. So, what spiritual gift do I have? Uh, it's debatable. I'll say, I'll throw teaching in there. I didn't ask for teaching. I don't remember ever praying for the gift of teaching. For a while, I believe after I got saved, the gift of teaching was dormant in me, but it was there, and I believe the Holy Spirit sovereignly gave that to me because He knew what 
he needed in his church and how he was going to work through me. So that's how he distributes the gifts to each Christian. He does it as he wills. Key phrase at the end of verse 11. Uh, parallel passage, Romans chapter 12 talks about the spiritual gifts. Listen to this phrase. And it is the Holy Spirit or is God who gives the gifts as he desires. As he desires. That's synonymous with as he wills. If you haven't, if you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. You got that spiritual gift because it was God's desire to give you that spiritual gift. As he desired. Romans 12, 18. First, uh, same chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. Uh, the Holy Spirit, God himself, even the Father, has appointed in the church various gifts. He has appointed, he has ordained, he has distributed, he has given according to his will. And then finally in Hebrews 2, 4, same thing that gifts were given to the early church, to believers in the early church, quote, the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. So it's kind of a no-brainer in light of Scripture when we hear frequently today evangelicals or Christians or whatever the persuasion trying to tell us as Christians that you need to seek this gift, you need to pursue this gift, every Christian needs to speak in tongues, and you just need to ask for it. That is antithetical to what is clearly revealed in the verses that we just read. God gives the gifts as he wills, not in accordance with our will. He is the authority. Let's go on to point number two, which is verse 12. So there's the authority of the Holy Spirit regarding the gifts. Verse 2, and then he emphasizes our unity in the Spirit with respect to the gifts. Even though there are many gifts, there should be a common unity. We're supposed to use these together, one common goal as a team. It's really that simple. Take, take sports is another great example. A basketball team, we've got different gifts. Here's the short, fast, quick guy who dribbles a lot. And he's a good passer, and he's called the point guard. And then there's this other guy that's midsize, and he's the forward, and he's supposed to rebound and do other things, and he's a good shooter. And then there's the center, the post guy. He's really, really tall and really slow, and he's supposed to get a bunch of rebounds and box out and those kind of things. So different gifts working together, one team, one goal. So also is the church of Christ. And so Paul's going to emphasize this unity among us. So that's verse 12. For even as the body is one, and now he's using uh, the human body as an illustration. He introduces the body, physical body. He's talking about the human body at the beginning of verse 12. He will use the word body all the way up to verse 27, 18 times. So he's entering into a metaphor of what the church should be like. The church should function like a body, human body. You've got all these different parts. I've got a thumb, which is very different than my ear, which is very different than my calf, but they all, you know, they never argue. They never fight. As a matter of fact, they help each other. Fingers going down, scratching my calf, etc., etc. Just blessed diversity, wonderful harmony. They always get along. Why can't the church be like that? That's what Paul's going to be arguing. And he, uses, he introduces this term body, which is unique. It's really the body of Christ. The body of Christ. That is the church of Christ that began at the day of Pentecost. The body of Christ is not a phrase you will find in the Old Testament. The church is the bride of Christ. Israel is also called the bride of Christ. The church is the temple of Christ or God. And believing saints in the Old Testament were also called a temple of God. So this metaphor of the body of Christ is very unique and highly used by the Apostle Paul to speak of the uniqueness of the church of Jesus Christ. 
and its blessed diversity and unity. And so he goes on in verse 12, our unity in the spirit. He says, for even as the body is one, the human body, and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though there are many, they're one body still. It's really that simple. There he's talking about the human body. And now he's going to make an analogy. So also, just like the human body with its blessed diversity and unity, so also, and then you would think Paul would say, so also is the church. He doesn't say that. The end of verse 12. But that's what he means. Just as the body is diverse yet one, so also is the church diverse yet one. But he doesn't say church. Look at the end of verse 12. It is absolutely amazing or mind-boggling. He says, so also is Christ what, what do you mean by that, Paul? He means that the church is united with Christ. The church is to be Christ on the earth. We are the body of Christ. We represent Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples before he left, you will continue the work that I began. And then Jesus left and left his believers here, the church, to represent him. So we do. We represent Jesus Christ on the earth. And this also speaks of this supernatural unity that we have with Jesus Christ if we know him personally. We are united with Christ. We are one with him. So really the word Christ there is almost synonymous with the church. It's absolutely amazing. And so we are to be unified despite our diversity, our unity in the spirit. And then he goes on, look at verse 13. This is our, now he talks about our identity in the Holy Spirit. Our identity for by one spirit. And now this verse is the one that is frequently tweaked. I'd say misunderstood, misinterpreted, misapplied. It's probably one of the most important verses we need to understand in this chapter or when speaking about the spiritual gifts. Because it is used so frequently, I think, in a wrong manner. But it is not that difficult. Let's look at it together. For by one Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. One Holy Spirit. We, who's that? Christians. This is the key. Every true born-again Christian, every believer, for by one Holy Spirit, we were all... Note, that's a key word. All means all here. It means all believers. It means every person that believes in the gospel and is regenerate and born again. So, in other words, among Christians, there aren't the haves and the have-nots. There aren't those who... They had the second blessing, and then there's those Christians who didn't have the second blessing. There are those Christians who are baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then there are Christians who haven't been baptized with the Holy Spirit. No, that is not true. We all. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happens to every Christian. Paul is clear. For by one Holy Spirit, we were, by the way, it's past tense. He's talking to these Corinthians. He's talking to these carnal, disobedient, immature Corinthians, but he considers them believers. And he's including himself on an equal plane with these immature, carnal, Corinthian believers. We all, every Christian, no matter where we are on the spectrum of spiritual maturity, we all, we all were baptized past tense. So if you're a Christian, at some point you were already baptized. Well, baptized, you mean water? No, I'm a Christian and I haven't been baptized in water yet. So this doesn't apply to me. This is not talking about baptism in water. We, we talked previously at one point that the word baptizo, baptism, has at least five. And if I threw in Hebrew six, six different meanings in the New Testament based on the context. Sometimes baptism refers to getting dunked or immersed in water. 
Sometimes the baptism passages have absolutely nothing to do with physical water. They're dry baptisms. They're spiritual baptisms. Uh, I guess one of the best ways to do it, to think about it, is the word baptizo, just think it, it means uh, identification, to be identified with. That could either be through the metaphor of physical water or it could be a spiritual reality. So in 1 Corinthians 10, we saw that the Israelites were baptized by Moses in the desert, in, in Christ. That's talking about a spiritual baptism. They were identified with the Messiah who was yet to come. It had nothing to do with water. That is a dry baptism, 1 Corinthians 10, by way of example. Another uh, example to show the way uh, baptism is used differently, John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, the very beginning of his ministry, He's saying, repent for the forgiveness of sins. And it said the entire city of Jerusalem was coming to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. And they were all coming and he was dunking them in water by identification, to be identified with the God of Israel for the repentance of sin in preparation for the coming of Messiah. So the baptism, and then John said, my baptism is of water. And it is for the repentance for the forgiveness of sin. But one comes after me, who's greater than I or mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. And he will baptize not with water. He will baptize, get this, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John explicitly said, Jesus will baptize not with physical water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What do you mean by that? Well, when Jesus comes and preaches the gospel and the word goes out and people hear about Christ, they're forced to make a decision. I either submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and bow the knee or... I reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will be a consequence as a result. If you submit and believe and get saved, then you are baptized supernaturally, invisibly, by the Holy Spirit from Jesus at the moment of salvation. That is spirit baptism. That's what John was talking about. If you reject Jesus Christ and you remain in your obstinate heart towards God and then you die in unbelief, you will be judged by Jesus Christ as Lord and you will be condemned with fire. You'll be identified and consumed with the judgment of fire and hell. That's what John meant. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's a spiritual baptism. So really, Jesus baptizes everybody, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. It's with the Holy Spirit. If you get saved, it is with the judgment of fire if you die in unbelief. And so going back to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, verse 13 has nothing to do with water. Get that out of your mind. This is a spiritual transaction. It happens in the heavenlies. We cannot see it. It's something that God does. It's a spiritual reality. It is not physical. And every one of us who is a true Christian has been baptized into one body. At one point, so this is your autobiography and mine if you are a Christian today. So like Billy Graham tells the story of in the 1970s where he was visiting a church and... Um, the preacher was preaching. He was a Pentecostal church and the Pentecostal preacher was saying, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit, sister? Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit, brother? Have you been? And then they were all saying this. And then he pointed at Billy Graham, who was in the front row. Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit, son? And Billy Graham, who was a Christian at the time, said, uh, yeah, I have. And then talking to the preacher, the preacher told him, no, you haven't because you haven't received the second blessing. You haven't been filled with the Holy Spirit after conversion. You don't speak with tongues. And then Billy Graham said, no, I've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. It was done. And the proof is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 
So going back to that verse, for by one Holy Spirit, every single Christian was baptized, past tense, at the time of conversion into the body of Christ. That's when you were added to the church body, supernaturally and spiritually. Whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, it doesn't matter uh, any rank or ethnicity or your gender. If you believe in Christ and the gospel, you're a part of the body of Christ. And we were all made to drink of one spirit at the time of salvation. So uh, both being baptized in the spirit and being able to drink of one spirit, those are synonymous phrases that speak of a great truth that happens the moment you got saved. Drinking of the spirit means that uh, you're, you're saved, you're refreshed, you're cleansed, and there's this flowing water, spiritually speaking, from Almighty God to the gift of salvation in light of the words of Isaiah 55. The metaphor there, that water speaks of life and salvation. And once you become born again, it's like you've got this river of living water flowing out of your soul that continually feeds you and gives you life and continual cleansing. That's the reality of a Christian. That's what he's talking about when he says, if you're a Christian, you already got baptized by the Holy Spirit, you were added to the body of Christ, and at that moment of salvation, you began to have the flood and the flow of supernatural saving waters from Jesus Christ himself deep within your soul. Go to John chapter 7. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy from Jesus himself in John chapter 7. I believe this is what Paul is talking about, the reality that's being fulfilled. That if you're a Christian, the moment you got saved, there burst open, as it were, an invisible spiritual well within your soul that just flooded out life, power, regeneration, ongoing sustenance through the gift of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 7, Jesus said, Now on the, uh, see, on the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If any man is thirsty, if any woman is thirsty, if anybody has a longing for God, if anybody has a desire and an insatiable thirst to be forgiven of sin and to be right with God, and they are overcome with guilt and need to be relieved of guilt, and you're dry in your soul, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the gift of salvation, forgiveness of sin, of knowing God. He cried it out. He shouted it out at the top of his lungs. This is publicly amidst the crowds at the time of uh, the feast, people are everywhere. And he says, if any person is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What does that mean? Come to Jesus. He's the only one that can satisfy your thirst, right? Your spiritual thirst can only be satisfied in Christ through the gift of salvation, through his death and resurrection. Come to me, come to me. Not do religion like the Pharisees are telling you. It's nothing you can do. It's come to me. That's the solution. Come to me and drink. What does that mean? Continually take from the source of all life, Jesus. Well, verse 38, he who believes in me, he who believes that Jesus is the God-man, he who believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the one who believes uh, that Jesus is the only Savior, the one who believes that Jesus lived a perfect life without sin, willingly went to the cross and died as a substitute on the cross and got Poured, uh, God the Father poured out His wrath on Jesus as the substitute for sinners. And then Jesus raised from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death and the devil and hell and the world on behalf of anyone who would believe in Him as the Savior. And then Jesus rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is now seeking sinners through His powerful gospel and the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus means when He says, anybody who comes to Me and believes in Me. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a man. I'm not just a do-gooder. 
It's Almighty God in the flesh, the only Savior in the world. He is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to the Father. He's the only way to have forgiveness of sin and spiritual life. That's what he means. The one who believes these things about me, just as the scriptures say. Here's the key. Then you, if you believe, you will be saved. You'll be regenerate. You'll be born again. Uh, the old man will die. God will give you new life as a new Christian, a new creation. He will give the Holy Spirit to live inside of you the moment you believe. And as a result, Jesus said, from their innermost being, from their very soul. This is amazing. From their very, that, I just remember explicitly when the day and the moment I got saved. Not all of you have that testimony because of maybe different circumstances, but some of you have that testimony where it was just day and night, black and white, as clear as a bell. You were a sinner and in a moment you became a saint and something changed radically. And it was invisible, but it was a supernatural reality. Transaction from God who saved you from sin, who regenerated you on the inside and gave you His Holy Spirit to live inside of you. And as a result of that amazing, supernatural, unchangeable truth, Jesus said, when that happens to you, from the innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And it's continual flowing, continual flowing, continual flowing. Continu-. You know what that means? Ongoing, continual, nonstop forgiveness of sin. Ongoing, continual spiritual life and sustenance from God that cannot be taken away. Spiritual life or being born again is eternal. It truly is eternal life. You can't lose your salvation. Because God is the initiator and the sustainer. So it's this supernatural transaction that happens on the inside that is just like a river, a, a river of living water. And that's why Jesus at the woman in the well in John 4, same thing. Boy, if you just come to me and realize I'm the Messiah, I can give you uh, supernatural water, not just this old well water that doesn't last. I can give you spiritual life through the gospel. She didn't get it initially, but that's what he was talking about. And that's what Paul is talking about. Go back to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So our identity in the Holy Spirit. Every single person that is truly a Christian has already been baptized in the Holy Spirit, has already been baptized with the Holy Ghost. So if some preacher says to you and sticks his finger in your face and says, brother, sister, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And if you're a Christian, you'd say, amen. Yes, I have. When did it happen? The moment of conversion, when I believed in the gospel, when Jesus saved my soul. That's when it happened. And it can't be taken away. And it's a one-time reality. And it's true of every Christian. We're all on level playing field from God's point of view. Hence the beautiful unity that comes in knowing Christ. Let's go on to number four after our, the authority of the Spirit, our unity in the Spirit, our identity in the Spirit. The number four verse uh, 14, our diversity in the Spirit. We are all different. You're different. Don't get offended if I go up to you someday and say you're very different. You don't need to get self-conscious. You should say, amen, praise the Lord. God made me that way. That was by His design. Or maybe you're married. My spouse is so different than me. My spouse is so different than me. Yeah, duh. That's by God's design. It's a beautiful thing. It's called compliment. Compliment. It's right out of Genesis chapter 2. So differences, diversity, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. Many times it's by God's design creating harmony, meeting the needs and deficiencies we have in our own life. And that's true with diversity in the body of Christ. Verse 14, Paul says, For the body is not one member, but many. Yeah, it's one church, but there are many members, and we need every member. We need to lean on every member. 
We need to be ministered to by every member and their different gifts and their different perspectives and their different experiences and the different ways God uses them. Absolutely essential to our own growth and maturity in Christ, our diversity in the Spirit. Uh, Romans, Romans 12, 6, the Apostle Paul in that parallel passage, he says categorically or very clearly, quote, we Christians, we have gifts that differ. We have gifts that differ, end quote. Incredibly important phrase. I remember counseling someone years ago, maybe 15 plus years ago, and sweet Christian, quiet, passive Christian. They were very faithful to their local church. They had an ongoing regular gift or service that they did for the church. Uh, it wasn't showy. It wasn't seen by many people, but it was very important, especially when you're a pastor and you know what needs to happen behind the scenes. It was very much appreciated that they were just feeling quite discouraged for a long period of time because they felt like, oh, I'm a nobody. I, I mean, how's God even using me? And this passage was shared with them and just changed their whole perspective. And they realized, wow, I'm a little toe under a sock in a shoe that no one can see, and yet I am important and can be used by God in a significant way. And it just kind of changed everything in terms of their perspective of how they were be they were willing now to be used by God in light of the gift that he gave them. It's absolutely essential. So I know for a fact that that truth uh, just changed somebody's perspective for the rest of their Christian life. And that's what truth does. Know the truth, the truth will set you free. So we need to keep that in mind of our, our blessed diversity we have in the Spirit. Well, with that, let's go ahead and talk. Uh, look at number five. I want to bring some clarity on the Spirit. I've already talked about what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But by way of review... I just thought of these five phrases regarding the Holy Spirit that often get confused. I gave you some key verses there if you want to do further Bible study. But I'll comment briefly on each one and what they mean because, again, there's great confusion on these phrases and what they actually mean and how they're played out. And just by way of summary, I'll read them. There's being filled with the Spirit. There's being indwelt by the Spirit. There's being baptized by the Spirit, sealed by the Spirit, and then praying in the Spirit. From my personal experience and from formal theology, from a Pentecostal heritage and now a charismatic perspective, uh, they would say that being filled with the Spirit is the second blessing that happens after you get saved that usually is evidenced by speaking in tongues. And they would also say that is true of letter C, to be baptized by the Spirit. So filled with the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit, Evidence by speaking in tongues. And then many times they'll say, letter E, praying in the Spirit, a command you see in Ephesians 6.18. They'll say, that means to pray speaking in tongues. Many times in your closet, by yourself, at home. This is praying in the Spirit. Speaking in tongues to God, and He's the only one that can hear you. And I would say, no, that's, that's not true at all. So let's just, what do they mean in biblical context? First one is A, some clarity on the Spirit and His ministry. First is being filled with the Spirit. Clearest passage is Ephesians 5.18, where Paul just simply says, uh, do not get drunk on wine, for that is dissipation. In other words, don't be disobedient and don't get involved in sin. Don't let ungodly things control you. And alcohol controls you. You lose control when you're intoxicated by alcohol or drugs. That's the whole point. Drunkenness is a sin, and a byproduct as well is that you lose control. You lose your inhibitions. Now you're 
victim susceptible to all kinds of sin and Satan himself. So don't be drunk with wine. Don't be controlled by alcohol. Rather, in the contrast, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? This is something that happens after you become a Christian, and it happens all of your life. And it happens repeatedly and continually and over and over again. And this is something that we do. This is an action that we take. This is a command. It's an imperative. We're responsible for doing it. That's what Paul said. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the passive tense, meaning put yourself in a position to be influenced by God so that you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. A synonym for being filled with the Spirit is just obedient. Be obedient in keeping with what the Spirit requires in light of scriptural truth. A parallel passage of Ephesians 5.18 is Colossians 3. And it's, it doesn't use the word be filled with the Spirit. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That, those are the same thing. Uh, in Galatians, Paul uses a synonymous phrase. He says, walk in the Spirit. Live a life of obedience in the Spirit. How do you do that? By letting the word of God, Scripture, come into you, take over your mind, you think about it, you pray about it, you deliberate on it, you act on what Scripture says, and you live your life in accordance and in harmony with biblical truth in obedience to God and submission to Him, resisting sin. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And we are not always successful. As a matter of fact, the Christian is like this. Oh, I'm, I'm filled with the Spirit. Oops, I got short patient with my kids and I got angry. Oop, and then now I'm trying to live in the Spirit again. And, Oops, I got mad at my boss and I said not, not nice things behind his back. And oh, I'm walking in the Spirit. And oh, I said something about somebody else. That's the Christian life. It's this ongoing battle of trying to resist our sin and walk in obedience in the Spirit. It is a civil war in the soul. Every single one of us has to do with it every single day. So the uh, being filled with the Spirit is walking in obedience in Spirit in light of being di- uh, directed by Scripture. And it happens over and over. And it's something we pursue and it's part of our life of sanctification, filled with the Spirit. B, Indwelt by the Spirit is something that happens the moment you got saved. And that was the promise of Jeremiah 31, and especially Ezekiel 37, or 36, where God promised that He would put His Spirit inside of us. And so the moment you got saved, God put the Holy Spirit to live in you and me for all of our days until we either die and go to heaven or Jesus returns. Every Christian is indwelt by the Spirit. This is not true in the Old Testament. All unbelievers in the Old Testament, not every believer, was indwelt by the Spirit. I'll say it again. In the Old Testament, believers were not all indwelt by the Spirit of God because God said very clearly, repeatedly, I'm going to do a new thing. It's called the new covenant. And that new thing is that will be different is I will put my Spirit in you. And Jesus said the same thing in John 7. And... In other places. So indwelt by the Spirit, every Christian has the Spirit living in them. Baptized by the Spirit, we already went over that. That happens the moment you believe in the gospel and the Spirit of God does a transaction and adds you to the body of Christ through the power of His Spirit. And He puts the Spirit in you as well. It's very inclusive. It happens one time in your Christian life. If you're saved, you were already baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit of Christ through Jesus Himself. D. Sealed by the Spirit. Paul's very clear. The moment you get saved and believe in the gospel, another ministry of the Holy Spirit is he seals you or protects you and puts his Spirit in you to guarantee that you will be glorified someday in the future and that you cannot be separated by anything in this life. Sin, Satan, death, temptation, nothing. 
will separate you because the guarantee is the Holy Spirit who you have been sealed with until the day of resurrection. Every Christian has been sealed by the Holy Spirit guaranteeing their resurrection in the future. You cannot lose your salvation. And then finally, praying in the Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 6.18, you need to pray in the Spirit. He repeats that in Philippians as well. A Christian is typified by one who prays in the Spirit. Jesus alluded to it in John 4. Don't be like the Pharisees who pray externally, ritualistically, programmatically, according to the flesh, carnally, to be seen by men. And the very antithesis was, don't pray outwardly according to the flesh, pray in the Spirit. That means in the realm of the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, direct access to Almighty God because you're a priest through the work of Jesus Christ in accordance with Scripture in a supernatural way. It's spontaneous conversation. It's dynamic conversation with God. It's not canned prayers like the Pharisees had. It was very limited. This is an ongoing dynamic relationship an ability you have as a Christian through the power of the Holy Spirit to talk to your Heavenly Father, the Creator of the universe, the way you would your own earthly papa or best friend. That's praying in the Spirit. And you can do it anywhere, anytime. You don't have to go to the temple at prayer hour at 9 and 3 o'clock. Praying in the Spirit means praying in the realm of the Spirit means a Christian can pray at any time, anywhere. Or a believer. Jonah, he's in the whale. He's getting squished. He's inside. He's, it stinks. And he prays to God inside the whale. And all of us, we can do the same thing. We can pray anytime, anywhere. That's what it means to pray in the Spirit. Dynamically in the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us and provides direct access to Almighty God through Jesus Christ. What a great and wonderful privilege. Thank God for the amazing ministry of the Holy Spirit. With that, let's go ahead and enter into communion where we are reminded of Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death on our behalf. Um, In preparation for communion, open to Luke chapter 22, where this is Luke's version of the Last Supper. Actually, they were celebrating Passover, which was the Old Testament feast, and then Jesus transformed the Passover into the First Communion. So in Luke 22... To prepare hearts, verse 14. Jesus says, or it says, when the hour had come, Jesus is about to die. Feast of the Passover is at hand. When the hour had come, he reclined, probably on the floor with his apostles, having a meal together. The apostles were with him, and Jesus said to his apostles, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knew this was the time. This is the last one. Verse 16, For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so then he takes the elements, starting at verse 19. And having taken some bread, when he had given thanks to the Father, he broke the bread and he gave it to the apostles, saying, This is my body. Now we know that Jesus means this represents my body, or this represents my life, my perfect life, my sinless life, as the God-man who came to be your substitute. That's what he means. It's a symbol of that. This is my body which is given for you. I'm I'm going to be given as a sacrifice for you. I'm going to die for you so that your sins might be forgiven. To appease God's wrath so that He doesn't pour out His eternal wrath on you as a believer. Do this in remembrance of me. Keep celebrating this Passover which is now communion for the church.
and keep repeating this and celebrating this and always remembering the purpose of it, that I came to die as a substitute for you. And then in verse 20, and in the same way, he took the cup. And it was wine. And it very well could have been red, and so it looked like blood. And he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you. In other words, I'm going to pour out my life for you. I'm going to die sacrificially for you. And that's what we celebrate when we're having communion. So when we're uh, having communion, just keep that in mind that as you take the bread and as you take the little cup, uh, I'll ask you to come up. And uh, we got two tables up here and two back there. And as you come up, grab the cup, uh, grab the bread, and then you're going to go back to your seat. And we'll give you a moment to reflect and to pray and to do this very thing that Jesus has. Priority number one is being reminded that Jesus gave his life for you. He died for you. And as a result of believing in Him, you have forgiveness of sin, a relationship with Almighty God. What a blessed truth. That's, it's time to celebrate. This cup which is poured out for you. And this is an amazing statement that only Luke tells us at this time. Jesus said, the communion, this time of communion, and my death on your behalf is the new covenant. That comes right out of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. This is the new covenant. We participate in the New Covenant. There are many blessings resulting from the New Covenant. Ezekiel 36.27, one of those blessings that God promised to give His believing people as a result of the New Covenant, and the New Covenant is Jesus. Jesus is the, the New Covenant. His life, His death, His resurrection, His pouring out of His Holy Spirit, that is the consummation and the ultimate uh, fulfillment or the actually the inauguration of the New Covenant. The church gets to enjoy those privileges and there are many yet to be enjoyed in the New Covenant. But right now, one of the main ones we get to enjoy is Ezekiel 36:27, when God said with the New Covenant, I will put my Spirit in you. And so at the time of communion, we can reflect on that truth and even thank God for the Holy Spirit and His very personal, intimate ministry to you and your soul in so many different ways. So we have that wonderful privilege. So I'd invite you, if you know Jesus Christ personally, today and have a relationship with Him, then you're invited to celebrate communion with us. And always remember, uh, Paul cautioned us as well. Use this time for reflection as well. Confessing sin to Jesus, our blessed Savior. And with that, let me go ahead and pray before we partake. Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for the ongoing reminder of communion. Thank You for the amazing promises um, that are fulfilled that come with salvation and the new covenant and remind us of why we celebrate with the bread and the cup all for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.